All right, well, we're continuing on in our, our study of Esther. We're in chapter 6. I'm going to invite Jessica to come on up and read from Esther chapter 6. As she's coming up, would you stand with me? Uh, you can turn uh, in your Bible. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles in the seat right in front of you. You can grab hold of that or turn on your tablet, your phone. Follow along. Good morning. Let me get myself together here. Okay, all right. Esther 6, 1 through 11. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be bought, which the king are brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you haven't mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Thank you. Well, I'm very much going to let the story do the talking for me because this is a great story. Uh, it's a. Uh, I'm Dane, by the way. I didn't. You already introduced me. You don't. You don't care. I'm Dane. Uh, some of you are like, really? If you've seen me before, I might look different. So, uh, sisters' weddings and all that kind of stuff. You gotta. Got to shave, cut the hair sometimes. All right, anyway, uh, <clears throat> we're going to let the story do the talking. I'll talk about my story. Because uh, it is, it's a great story. It's, it's a comedic tragedy. It's, it's something that you would expect you know, Shakespeare to have, have written this because of, uh, of its depth, and yet it's far greater than anything he could have penned. Um, and thus far, it's been actually a very dark story. This is a, a pretty dark, tragic story. <clears throat> There's some really heavy topics being discussed here that are almost breezed over, uh, likely because it was it was somewhat commonplace. You could say there's there's a lot of tragedy, a lot of uh, difficulty in uh, in in this day and age, and we like to think that with you know some of the advances of civilization, we look at these things that are barely even mentioned here, if they're mentioned at all, and we look at them with horror and disgust and and very much a, a wish that these tragedies don't find their way uh, to our door which is, of course, uh, somewhat wishful thinking uh, and a bit naive. I was talking with some people after first service uh, about some of the, the difficulties and tragedies that they're going through um, that very much so are, are, are found in, in these stories. Um, and so if you find yourself in, in that kind of a, a situation, know, first of all, you're not alone. Um, and the Bible speaks to our, our tragedies, to our difficulties. Um, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to summarize what we've learned as, as much as possible to bring us up to speed. Uh, and so uh, in chapter 1, we've, we see kind of the, the opening of this. Uh, King Ahasuerus, he divorced his wife uh, because she wouldn't come when she was called, when she was throwing a party uh, where only the women were invited, probably because her husband was a disgusting man who did whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, because he had the power and wealth and hubris to do so. So she gets banished, 
And so they have a beauty contest, which meant every good-looking girl in the kingdom of Persia that spanned all of the Middle East, um, basically from uh, down into Egypt as high as the Caspian Sea uh, and from the the border of of Greece in the west all the way through into India in the east. It's basically a landmass that's very much uh, the same size as the United States. It's a big area. And any good-looking virgin in that area could be brought to this beauty contest. And at the end of the contest, you'd get the privilege of having sex with the king. And if he liked you, you'd be called on again in the future. Uh, And if not, you'd live out your days in the harem on the off chance that he'd call you again in the future. Anybody want to play? And do you want to win? Because the grand prize winner gets the honor of being queen and burying King Ahasuerus' royal babies to carry on the great legacy of the Persian Empire. So it's a terrible story to start, right? Like, this is, this is not a happy story. Um, <clears throat> and Esther, well, she's chosen to participate in this, and she hides the fact that she's a Jew, advances in the contest, and eventually she wins it all. Mordecai, her cousin, acting as her father since her parents are both dead. Again, uplifting story here. He overhears an assassination plot against the king. And instead of letting that plot play out, he warns Esther, who warns the king. And it was written down, uh, but nothing really happened to Mordecai. And we're left wondering uh, whether he was glad he made that decision. Because next comes Haman. Haman, the murderous, Hitler-esque Haman the Agagite, the descendant of King Agag, the king of the Amalekites the sworn enemy of the Jewish people since they'd left Egypt and were attacked by them in the wilderness. Lots of backstories, lots of bad blood. So Mordecai doesn't bow down to Haman, and Haman gets upset with this, uh, and with his newfound power as number two in the Persian Empire and the wealth that rivals some of our billionaires today, he sets up a plan to eliminate all of the Jews once and for all. And of course... God isn't going to let that happen because, well, he's God. And he laughs at the plans of men. Psalm 37 is a good reminder for us for this. Psalm 37, uh, beginning in verse 12, says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. It's good to remember that when when God laughs at the wicked, it's not because they're doing wicked things. Uh, and hurting people. He laughs because they think they're in control. They think they'll get away with it. And he laughs because while they're doing those evil things and harming the, the innocent people, he knows what's coming for them because of what kind of reversal he can bring about from any story and will bring about from every story. We'll talk about that more later. But Mordecai, he hears of the plots of Haman and King Ahasuerus, and he isn't laughing. He's weeping. He's miserable. He gets word to Esther to inform her what's going on, and she has this choice to do something about this or not, which isn't much of a choice. One has the potential of her, her death, the other certainty. And she chooses the more immediate option. She goes before the king uncalled for. And this just further differentiates herself from uh, her predecessor, Vashti. Not only does she come when she's called, uh, she comes when she isn't called. And that's part of the problem in the story. Uh, And she doesn't prepare a feast where the king and his cronies are not invited to it. She prepares a feast where the king and his right-hand crony are the only two guests of honor. And God uses all of this. Because the king seems smitten with her and offers her whatever she'd ask. And she doesn't ask right away. She delays and asks that they return in the, the next day for another feast. And then she will make her request. Now, was this calculated? Did she just chicken out? We can't say. Only that God uses it perfectly in his timing for his plans to come to fruition. So what happens? Haman goes out from that party. Everything's going great for Haman until, of course, he sees Mordecai, who's miserable and moaning at the king's gate. If he wasn't miserable before, he's been fasting for three days, so you know he's not the picture of health and happiness at this moment. Yet he doesn't grovel or beg for mercy to Haman, doesn't give in to his demands, and so this enrages Haman further. And he goes to his friends and his wife, 
in chapter 4 at the end, in, in verse 14, and it basically says, none of this means anything if I can't get stupid Mordecai to just bow down before me. I have everything. I've got all this stuff. I've got wealth. I've got my family. I've got my job. And all of it means nothing if Mordecai won't do what I want him to do. Well, verse 14, Zeresh, his wife, gives him some great advice. She says, look, honey, if, if he bothers you that much, just, just build a gallows. Have, your, have your, you know, your, your henchmen go cut down a tree and sharpen the point of it and go to the king in the morning after you've had your coffee and ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. And you'll be right as rain, just in time for the party of the, of the king and the queen. And do get me invited to the next one. I heard Lady Esther's quite lovely. Well, that's my interpretation, obviously. But it does go to show... Um, that this is, this is quite the, the group here that, that he's taking advice from, his wife and his friends. Um, their advice to him is just, just kill him. Just kill him, you'll be happy. Get rid of the problem. Well, Haman likes the idea, and he gives the order for construction to start immediately and be done by the next day, so let's not delay. Let's get this done. And it gave God all the time he needed to turn the tides on this man who thinks so highly of himself. And he doesn't think highly of himself for no reason, right? I mean, think about what this guy has. He has everything you could hope to achieve in, in this world. He's an already mega rich billionaire, and you just gave him the keys to the nation's nuclear warheads. Not that we've done that in recent history or anything, but this ultra, ultra egomaniacal man was also incredibly anti-Semitic in his thinking and his history, and he'd stop at nothing to kill all the Jews. And it seemed that he had all the means and opportunity to do so, and so nothing could stand in his way, except for a bunch of seemingly serendipitous circumstances that happened that same night. And so what are these happy little accidents, you could say? Well, there are quite a few of them. Read it with me again, beginning in verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of, memor of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And just in these two verses, there are at least four obvious count-your-lucky-stars moments right there. That night, the king couldn't sleep. If it had been the night before or the night after, this wouldn't work. He can't sleep, so what does he do? Well, he could do anything. Bring in a girl from the harem. Bring in some actors or musicians. Bring in my war council. Bring in food and wine. He could do anything. And what does he do to pass the time? Hey, read me a book. Well, which book? Uh, how about some history? That always puts me to sleep. Okay. Uh, what do you want us to read? Well, bring out the book of memorable deeds, you know, the, the chronicles. Okay, where do you want us to start? Something recent, you know, preferably something incredibly boring that helps me sleep. Okay. How about the story of the assassination plot that was foiled by Mordecai? Well, that sounds intriguing. Sure. Foiled assassination attempts get me in the mood for sleeping or executing my servants, one or the other. We'll find out. Okay, on the 10th month of the 7th year of King Xerxes, Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold sought to do harm to the king. Their names were Big Thana, not to be confused with his brother Little Thana, and Teresh. We're considering, uh, considering baby names right now, and uh, not, neither of them are on the list for like 82 reasons. But uh, Anyway, this plot was uncovered by Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Quite a convenient story to be read at quite the convenient time. But then a bunch more things have to happen just so. The king had to care and ask the next question, and while the king seems to be fairly self-absorbed in the story and in recorded history, he's not without his own culture and traditions. So the Persian emperors were 
renowned, they always rewarded loyalty to the crown, and most emperors uh, do, otherwise you're not an emperor for very long. Uh, but the Persians were, were known for this. They'd go over the top for this. In fact, chapter one, we see uh, a good example. We get a taste of the level of extravagance uh, that Ahasuerus went to in order to impress, to woo his generals uh, and gain their loyalty. So what level uh, would he go to to show gratitude towards someone who displayed that loyalty without um, needing to bribe him? Well, we'll see how that plays out. Verse three, the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And so it just so happens that nothing had been done for Mordecai, which seems to be a pretty massive oversight. I mean, you'd think he'd at least get a thank you note in the mail or a couple gift cards out of the deal. Maybe a ticker tape parade and an interview on 60 Minutes. Maybe a documentary is already in the works, right? I mean, surely something is happening for this guy. Nothing? Nothing is happening. So the king takes an interest at just the right time and thinks, we can't delay. This is the business of today. Nothing else matters. It's like how suddenly something becomes extremely important at 2 or you know, 3 in the morning when you haven't been able to sleep and you're thinking about these things you got to do and all of a sudden this thing just becomes the only pressing thing in your schedule and you have to deal with it right now. But wait, they, they aren't awake yet. I can't call them for another few hours. That's too late. I got to start now. I got to start this project now. I can't start now because my kids are sleeping. Give me a break. No, I got to go prepare. So you start cleaning your garage and organizing your tools and getting ready and you, that, just so that you can call your internet provider and tell them that you're paying too much money. Nobody else does that every once in a while? Okay, we established that was weird a long time ago. But Ahasuerus' 4 a.m. discovery does seem a tad more important. This is, his enthusiasm is justified. He asks his servants, who is in the court right now? We're going to deal with this right now. And it just so happens, the number two most powerful man in the world just walked in with his coffee with a very specific request in mind. And his business of the day was a bit different than Ahasuerus' idea, but both involved the same man. How does that work out? Verse 4, the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king and having Mordecai, or about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he'd prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. And this is where it starts to get really comical, by the way, but no less providential. If the king hadn't asked in this specific way, and had Haman not answered in this specific way, all of this could have played out very differently. Uh, Read it again, you'll see what I mean. Verse 6, so Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to to, uh, one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the city square, the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." And the wording here is very, very important. Remember Ahasuerus' plans for the day are to reward Mordecai. Haman's plans are to impale him. If the king had said, hey, Haman, I just read this story about a guy named Mordecai. You won't believe this story. Haman perhaps could have spun it. Said, no, actually, I don't believe that story. In fact, uh, Mordecai was probably behind the plot. Because remember, uh, he's a Jew, and remember the plan that we made with the Jews, because the Jews are not for you, my king, the Jews are against you. They're not for this kingdom, they're against the kingdom of Persia. We've got to deal with this Mordecai before he gains more power, more favor in your eyes. It easily could have turned out differently. But something we'll come back to is, is Haman's state of mind here. Haman is truly all about Haman. He thinks he's all that. 
He just spent the last bit of chapter 5 bragging to his wife and buddies about how great he is. And here he, we see he can't fathom that there could be another human being in all the rest of Xerxes' kingdom who would be more worthy of honor than himself. We should all be familiar with the saying that comes from the scripture, pride goes before a fall. Well, that comes from Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Haman is going to fall big time. This is the big gotcha moment. This is the jaw-dropping moment in Esther. And if you talk about someone's jaw-dropping, you can only imagine Haman's jaw was on the floor with these next few words. Verse 10. The king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horses you've said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Well, Haman, in true, arrogant, self-absorbed, narcissistic fashion, thinks that the world revolves around himself. Surely the person the king would want to honor would be me. Who else could it be? I'm the most amazing thing to happen to this kingdom since we took over Babylon. I don't even know if sliced bread has been invented yet, but I'm best thing since sliced bread, right? And what would be a nice thing for me to experience? Well, let those royal robes be brought out that the king himself has worn and give him those to wear. Bring a nice horse, in fact, one of the king's horses, set a crown on that horse and then put me on that. And let the noblest official you have, well, maybe second noblest official, because obviously I'm the noblest official, and have him lead me around the city square, crying out to everybody to hear, this is what happens for the man in whom the king delights to honor. Make sure everyone in the whole kingdom knows how much you appreciate this guy. Wink. Well, the king's like, good, good, love the idea. It's a good idea. I knew I asked the right man for the job. You have such good ideas, Haman. Now, I need you to hurry. Don't delay. This has been delayed for far too long already. So take the robes, take the horse. You go find Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, and do as you have said. Don't leave anything out you just mentioned. Go. The shock on Haman's face. In one night... Haman's world went from all is good and well with my soul to coming completely unraveled, like he's living in a nightmare. And maybe some of you have felt that kind of dread, that kind of pit in your stomach when the world seems to have flipped upside down. And you're kind of in a dream, but it's a terrible dream. And all you can do is keep moving and talking and doing what you do almost automatically, robotically, because there's nothing else you can do. That's not a good feeling. And we'd feel sorry for Haman if, you know, he wasn't trying to kill an entire people group. But I try to imagine Mordecai's response to this treatment. And that's what makes me really laugh. I have to be careful when I read this because I'll just start laughing hysterically. Mordecai was hopefully much more honorable than I would be in this situation. But try to imagine this for Mordecai. You've been fasting for three days. You've been, going, been put through all of this. You've been miserable. You've been covering yourself in ashes. You've been wearing sackcloth, doing all this stuff. And you're, you're fearing for your life. You've been standing up for him. And you feel like you're alone in all of this. You don't even get to talk to your sort of kind of daughter. Like you, All of this stuff is happening. Poor Mordecai. And then this happens. It'd be really hard, man. I, I could see him up on that horse being paraded around by his mortal enemy just saying, what, what was that, Haman? I missed it. Could you, could you say that a little louder? Especially the part about me being the guy whom the king delights to honor? Oh, you know, those people over there, they didn't hear it. Could you, could you say it again? Louder, with more enthusiasm this time, Haman. Come on, man. I really do. I, I hope he was more honorable than me. 
but it'd be hard not to revel in it, to just rub Haman's nose in it. And it really isn't necessary. We, we see how both men respond to this moment, uh, and it's a moment of the most extreme reversals of human history. It is the turning point in the story. And how did God accomplish it? Well, the king couldn't sleep. And he read a book. One forgotten moment changed the course of history. What could God do with our lives, with all of our forgotten moments? Do you think he can't turn it upside down for good or ill in a matter of minutes? We'll come back to that thought in a minute, but Haman's life was turned upside down, much to his dislike. So let's see how he responds to this. Uh, Verse 12, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So Mordecai goes back to the king's gate. It's interesting, he went back to where he'd been doing the king's business, presumably fasting and praying, uh, because the trouble wasn't yet over. I mean, that was just the weirdest day of his life, no doubt. But um, I I don't think he, he could help but think, wow, thank you, God. You are doing something. We are not out of the woods yet. But clearly, you just did something none of us were expecting. Or maybe he just thought he really was just that lucky. You know, wow, timing, the coincidence of that couldn't be more perfect. I don't think so. Now we do see, I, I do believe that Haman and, and his friends and, and wife were superstitious. And that's uh, what led them to this conclusion. But this, this idea, Haman goes home with his head hung low, tail between his legs, and we love it. Why? Because he got what was coming to him. We like to see that kind of thing. A little bit of justice in this fallen world. Some humiliation for the ultra-arrogant. Which, just as an aside, I was thinking about this the other day. If God can so perfectly work out justice and humiliation for his enemies in this life, what will it be like in the next life? We crave justice, knowing that we likely won't see it because we live in this broken and sinful world, a bent creation. But when God doles out justice on Judgment Day, what's that going to be like? If he can pull together such a masterpiece here, what perfection will it be like in hell? 2 Corinthians 1.9 says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And if God could do this with a single sleepless night and limited powers of human kings, what could he do with eternity and his own unlimited might? I'm glad I won't find out firsthand as Haman did. And that makes God's grace towards me even more amazing. Because that's what we all deserve. We all deserve this. To be humiliated in the worst possible way. Because we have rebelled against the author of life. And instead of that, instead of giving us what we deserve, he reversed that story. And he offers us life instead of death forgiveness instead of punishment, and eternal bliss with him instead of destruction apart from his presence. Well, when Haman tells his wife and friends what happened, even there, they're amazed. They offer him a major reversal of what they just told him just hours before. Last night, they were saying, just kill Mordecai and be happy. This afternoon, it's, I don't know what to tell you, but if Mordecai's a Jew, you're not going to overcome him. You're going to surely fall before him. 
Sorry, honey. Have you eaten? Can I get you some lunch? Oh, never mind, because you have the king's party to get off to. That's right. Say hi to the queen for me. Try not to die. And this is, it's, it's a comedy, it's a tragedy. And we're told just then in verse 14, while they were talking with them, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Dun, dun, dun! Cliffhanger. What happens next, you'll find out next week. Or you could just read it. But some of these things to note before we close. This is a fun story. But what does all of it mean? There's some fairly obvious application points here. One good one would be, don't be arrogant like Haman, right? Like that'd be a fairly, fairly obvious one because it won't go well for you. But that's a proverbial statement. Uh, the proverbs don't always pan out in this life. Sometimes the arrogant live and die arrogant and they seem to get everything that they want. And that's why the wisdom literature is balanced uh, with Ecclesiastes. See, Proverbs tells us uh, what wisdom is and how things should and often do go. But Ecclesiastes is the book that tells you that even if you live in a function, uh, as the Proverbs tell you, sometimes life just seems upside down. Now, does that mean that the proverbial statement isn't true? No. In fact, it will absolutely come to pass that the humble will be exalted and the proud will be brought low. Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every knee will bow and tongue confess, whether that be joyfully and willingly or disparagingly with shock and horror in their eyes for how wrong they've been and how impossible it is to deny that Jesus is indeed Lord over all the earth. And I know I'd certainly prefer to be on the side of the angels in that one, who sing his praise long before the day comes. But that does take a bit of a reversal, which is no small miracle in and of itself. This moment in the the story is a moment of reversal. And reversal is tied so delicately to our churchy word we use over and over. We see it used over and over again in the New Testament. Repentance. Repent. Reverse. It literally means 180 degrees. Turn 180 degrees. Change. And that takes humbling. Sometimes humiliation. To say, I'm not all that. I'm not as big and powerful and wise as I think I am. And that can be harder. The the more stuff you accrue, the more powerful you become. But God loves the humble, and he resists the proud. This is a proverb that's quoted by James and Peter in the New Testament. But James tells it like this. James 4, verse 6 says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then he follows it up with this advice. Verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Because he is the God of reversals. He takes the humble person and lifts them up. Likewise, he can take a person who has every reason to be arrogant and humble them in spectacular ways to bring them to himself. And sometimes he just uses the little things, the things that are so commonplace of an experience that we, we kind of forget about them or we, we don't even realize it. Uh, for, for many of us, I think that experience is, uh, is having kids. Having kids has been quite a humbling experience uh, in my life. If you have a child and you think, I'm the best thing since the Persian Empire, you know, you've got your wor- world ordered and figured out, uh, either you haven't thought it through um, or you desperately need to be broken. <laughs> uh, having kids proves how little you have figured out, how small you once were, fragile, in need of leading and nurturing and learning. 
I think it's what drives many people to return to or, or seek out the church uh, when they become parents. But I was just uh, at Yosemite this last week with my family. I did a little mini vacation there with my wife and kids and my, my sister and brother-in-law. And, uh, and my sister had not yet been. Uh, and so this was super special. It's, it's pretty cool to see someone's reaction when you come out of the tunnel and, and you see the view from there of, of the, the valley floor and you get to see the reaction of someone that's like, whoa. Or when you get down to the valley floor and you look up and you get to see just how massive El Capitan really is. Or when you get that glimpse of the iconic half dome. And for some reason, photos just can never really do them justice because these things are just so huge. And we were standing at the bottom of a, uh, well, we hiked, hiked, it was pretty, pretty easy walk, to the bottom of Yosemite Falls, which there was no water running in it, a little bit of water running in it. Uh, and there was somebody standing at the very, very bottom. They like climbed the rocks all the way up to the very, very bottom of it. And it, it, I was like, that's super dangerous. What are you doing? And at the same time, I was like, but thank you, because now I can actually get an idea of the sense of scale of this thing. This thing is huge, and that's just the lower falls that we're talking about. And I think that places like this, everybody goes to, that goes to Yosemite recognizes this. People come from all around the world to see it. And when we see it, we stand amazed and marvel and are reminded just how small we are just how fragile we are. And I, I believe that's really good for a person to be reminded from time to time, not only am I not the center of the universe, but I'm actually a very, very small and fragile person. That the creator who made this beautiful thing, this massive thing, is far greater than his creation. I am not God. I must bow down before him. I think that's what places like Yosemite were created for. Reminders of reversal, to repent, to humble yourself before the Lord. And not everybody reacts that way. Just like Haman did not react that way towards uh, this humiliation. Um, some people look at El Capitan and think, I'm going to climb that. I'll master it. In fact, I'll do it without a rope. They'll make a documentary about you. I said, I'm, I'm not going to. I, I planned on a, a tirade against free solo documentary, but I'm going to skip it. Don't do it. Don't be foolish. Be humble. What are you really standing tall on? What ground have you put your trust in? What reasons do you have to brag? Take heed lest that ground be pulled out from under you and the very things that you brag about become the very thing that destroys your world. And that's a very encouraging thought. But it's very true. The last main takeaway for me there, uh, though there are many others, were how quickly things change. Uh, that, that God has proven time and time again that he can use anything or anyone. He's not hurried. He will not be rushed. His timing is perfect. And he can turn the world upside down using the most basic things that should, again, just prove to us our need to be humble before him. But more than that, not just the reversal of, of our natural pride to humility, that needs to be paired with trust. Repentance or, or that reversal is always paired in the New Testament with faith, with belief, with trust. These are the two basic tenets of the Christian faith. Repent and believe. That's what Jesus proclaimed uh, when he came and, and started his ministry. Mark 1.15, he says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what are we to trust? Can I really trust God with my life? Can I really place my circumstances in his hands? but it all seems to be going so badly. I don't feel any sense of control, but if I don't hold on to what I, I have, then it feels like it'll all just fall apart. Or how about we, how we respond to tragedy? 
when tragedy just struck in the worst possible way? Can I really trust God with this? When we get to that point where we can say, my life is hell and all I see on the horizon is further despair. How can I trust a God who has allowed my life to get here? Well, he is the God of reversals. Trust him. Trust the one who brought about the greatest reversal in history through his son. In what was the greatest tragedy, the greatest suffering in human history. Luke 24, 26 reminds us, says, what is, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The God of reversals did not spare his son. He did not spare himself from such great tragic suffering, but instead embraced it and gave us the promise that the suffering of this life is far outweighed by what comes after it, the glory that he will produce from it. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 17 reminds us of this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. But even now, who knows what he's able to accomplish to bring about glory from our sorrows and sufferings or even just the little decisions we make day in and day out, those forgotten moments. What can he do with those things even in this life? Trust him. Wait and see. And we have a part to play in all of this too and and we'll get to see more of that later in in the chapters of Esther. But, But Esther and Mordecai weren't just waiting around for stuff to happen to them. They were active, doing what they could do to make life better for the people around them. They were fasting and praying, trusting God along the way. I find it very comforting, the thought that for the Christian, that our deeds, our actions, our our words spoken, they will not be forgotten. We might forget them. God's not going to forget them. And maybe that terrifies you. And if that's the case, you should change some things in your life, right? Repent, um, reverse course. But for the Christian, your works are not forgotten. They're taken note of. And God who sees in secret those things that we do, he will reward us. Now I try to put myself in the shoes of kind of the random onlooker in the, the kingdom of Persia at this time. You know, what must they have been thinking it's like they, they get the Persian paper, you know. They've, they've got the news, the news app, and they're reading about the events of the day. One guy says to the next, have you heard what's happening in Susa these days? No, what's that crazy king up to now? Well, do you remember the, the edict that went out a little while ago about the Jews, uh, that we could kill them and take their stuff in a few months? Yeah, you know, I, I had to read that like five times before I could believe it. What a wildly radical and morally bankrupt law. Yeah, for sure. But then did you see what happened yesterday? Well, the king had Haman. You know Haman, the guy that like nobody likes and he's just everybody bows down before him when he walked by and it's weird. Yeah, that guy. Okay. The king had Haman put Mordecai the Jew on a horse and paraded him around the city square like he'd single-handedly defeated the Greeks. What? Yes! Mordecai the Jew. Okay, that doesn't make any sense. I think the king just doesn't have a clue. One day he's saying one thing, the next he's saying something else. I don't know if anyone's upstairs anymore. I think people are just leading him around and telling him what to do and say. Seems pretty unstable. I don't know what's going to happen here in this place. I don't know if he has a plan. I don't know if I like that plan. I don't know what's going to happen to us in, in this place. What's happened to our, our once prosperous nation? has a bit of a contemporary ring to it, doesn't it? But the point is, God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. He uses all things, 
even the freedoms and foolish sins of feeble humanity to bring about his plans and purposes so that all things are united under heaven and earth to him, to Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe it for yourself, for your life? Trust in God. What would he have you trust him with? Do you open your newsfeed and find yourself getting anxious or outraged? Maybe you should stop doing that. But is God calling you to trust him with what's happening in our state or our country? Is he calling you to trust him with the fate of your family? What's going on in the home right now? Is he calling you to trust him with your finances, your job, your lack of one? Is he calling you to trust him with your health and happiness or the the complete lack of those things? Is he asking you to trust him? Now, does that mean you sit around and do nothing about any of those things and just let things play out how they're going to play out? No. Be active in the part God has called you to play as the believers in God were in this story. But trust him like he is the actual God of the universe who will bring about his plans and purposes for the glory of Christ to whom we swear allegiance to. And I want to believe this. I want to believe this like Paul believed this. And Paul, his life was a life of reversal, so extreme and earth-shattering, but it landed him in a Roman prison uh, where he would write these words. Romans 11, verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. I want to believe like that. I want to believe like Job did. Job, who lost his sons and daughters and wealth and health and happiness, all the things that Haman had at that moment. And after wrestling with God's wisdom and justice in such a seemingly cruel world, he was simply reminded of who God is. And then he was able to say this, Job 42, 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I want to believe that. Yet so much of the time, I feel much more akin to the father whose son was tormented, who cried out to Jesus um, for help. And then Jesus challenged his believers with this statement in Mark 9, 23. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And then verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. God is so merciful and gracious as to actually help us when we ask for this. To help us as we ask to be made humble before him and to trust him with the things going on in our lives. He is there to help. And he wants us to ask. So let's ask. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on back up and we'll sing some songs to the Lord. But during that time, uh, there are the communion elements uh, around the room. Uh, And if you want to grab one of those, we're not going to do that together. You can just do that um, as an individual. Uh, And as you do that, though, do that remembering the greatest reversal that has ever taken place in human history, uh, that Jesus overcame the the grave. That he died, he shed his, his, his blood for us to pay the penalty of our sin. And then I'd also, I'd, I'd encourage each of us to, to think and, and ask some questions. It's the questions I'll be asking myself as, as we're, we're singing these songs. What is it in, in, in my life that needs to be humbled. And asking God to humble humble you is a very treacherous, dangerous thing to ask for, right? Because we're like, but what if I don't like it? You know, Haman didn't seem to like it very much. 
Okay, but it's so necessary. In order to come into his, his kingdom, there's, it takes humility. What is it, God, that, that you want to do to humble me? And then also ask the question, and, and how can I trust you? What is it that you want me to trust you with? In my life, right now, in my circumstances, you know, God, how can I trust you more? And so let's ask those songs as we sing praise to him. But let's first... Uh, pray and ask for help with that. Heavenly Father, you are good. We thank you for stories like this that remind us of how good you are. That you're in control even when we, we see and we think and our understanding is that everything's out of control. But help us to trust you. God, we need help trusting you. We need help to be humble. So we ask your Holy Spirit to come to do a work in our hearts that only you can do, that we'd be humble before you and learn to trust you. Give us the the gift of, of faith to believe that, yes, you are the God of the universe. I am not God. You are God, and I can trust you. We love you, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our God is a God of reversals who desires repentance and faith in his people. And I keep being reminded of of other stories as we've been studying through uh, Esther, two in particular that keep coming to my mind um, from the scripture where a believer was brought to a place of power through extraordinary circumstances in God's providence. Um, I think of Daniel in Babylon Uh, just a handful of emperors before King Ahasuerus. Uh, But I also think of Joseph in Egypt way, way, way long before these things were taking place. Uh, And what a reversal story that was. But I I love his words, uh, his response to his brothers who uh, were afraid of him, their brothers' fear of him. And it was so perfect in describing the heart and attitude uh, a Christian ought to have. So I thought I'd end with, Uh, with his words to send us out. Genesis 50, verse 19 and 20, it says, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And we need to humble ourselves. We're not in the place of God. We don't understand all the workings and plans that he's making, only that which he's made and has revealed to us. And he is doing thousands of little things in our lives every day. So let's trust him with his plan, come what may. God bless and keep us.